Hello and welcome back to another episode of League Talk, the podcast all about management, coaching, performance and all things League of Legends. My name is, on, is AJ and on today's podcast we have a man who I've been working with for the previous split, professional top laner Zergoth. Welcome, thank you so much for your time buddy, I appreciate you coming on but why don't you start off with a little introduction for yourself. First off, thank you for having me. No um, My name is Benjamin Sanchez, known as Zergoth, as I play top lane for Barash Esports right now. I've played... Uh, I think the most notable thing for this podcast is that I've played the competitive league for quite a while. Mm. So I started back in 2014, um, played until 2017, then took a year break, one, one and a half year, and now I'm back playing again. Yeah, because you, you also dabbled in a bit of uh, Here's the Storm, right? You spent some time yeah. playing that game, and I think you were, uh, was it, were you playing professionally for that as well? Oh, uh, I, I was very close to, like mm. I... I played the game for like half a year-ish, mm. and I got to talk with a lot of the pro players at the time. Like I was friends with quite a few of them. Mm. Some of them continued on like after Heroes of the Storm, well, got killed, so to speak. <laughs> um, they continued doing their thing, and I still talked to them in a while. But back then, I would say I was one of, one of the better amateurs, so to speak. Like uh, I, I played it for a very short time and I got into it really quickly. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would have like continued playing that game, but I got killed. It, it, it got stopped obviously by Blizzard. Did, when, when you uh, say it got killed and got stopped, it literally they cancelled the game. They forgot about it. Gone. Is that what happened? Not forgotten. It was a conscious decision to just stop the com- competitive circuit altogether. Oh mad. The, oh, it was supposed to. It was supposed to continue on. And mm-hmm. I know a lot of people that were had like insider info that it was supposed to continue in 2019. But they just pulled the plug at one point, uh, and that's about it. It's, it's it's the same as if Riot would say like, "Yeah, we're not play, we're not doing LCS anymore." Holy! I didn't even realize. I, I I assumed it just sort of like tapered out as viewership went down or something. They just ended up not doing it. But I didn't realize they just like, "Yeah, whatever. It's gone now. We finished." Man. No, viewership was going up. Oh, viewership really? was going up actually. Yeah, but I think from what I heard from Inside Info, and this is conjecture. Like this is not yeah, yeah. fact. They wanted, they wanted, like, Overwatch League was making so many, like, they had, they needed to invest more. Mm. And they had, like, an esports budget. Like, they have budgets, obviously, for development, but they also have it for esports. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to just, the very little that they put into Heroes of the Storm, just wanted to put it more into Overwatch. So that's what I heard was happened, so to speak. Mm. Interesting, because, you know, you and I, we know each other relatively well now. We've spent uh, a good chunk of time together during this previous UK split. And one of the, like, most interesting things uh, and that I like to hear about from you is is your career. Now, obviously, we spoke a little bit about Heroes of the Storm then, but you have had a lot of experience in this game. You said you've been playing professional league for a while now. Um, but let's get an overview of your time as, like, an esports athlete. So maybe, like, from the inception of the moment you started playing professional uh, League of Legends to sort of where you are now, really. I mean, like I said, I started back in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, I started uh, on a Dutch team called Lowland Lions, where I got scouted at the time because I was highly rated in solo queue. This is like how, how everyone starts in league, yeah. right? You just get highly rated in solo queue, uh, and people scout you out, and they like they figure out who you are and they play with you. So I was really young at the time, like for for my like at the age I started at, mm. I didn't realize it until recently that I was really young. Like I was 16, I think. Wow. 15, barely 16. Uh, that's when I started playing my first LAN tournaments and events. Mm. Um, that continued all the way through 2015. And to, then in 2015, I joined Mouse Sports in the Challenger Series, a substitute top laner, mm-hmm. uh, where I, I shared scrim time with Binsu. Okay. I was mostly like, like we, sh- we shared scrims, I would say, 
from my memory, like 20, 80, 30, 70, where mm-hmm. he played like 80%, I played 20, around that. Like he, in, if there were six, if there were six scrim games on a day, I would play one or two, Fine. which would be on average. And then in Challenger series, I didn't get a game. I was supposed to, but I didn't. Um, and after most sports, I decided I didn't want to be a sub. I wanted to be a starter. So mm-hmm. I played uh, on Exertus in the UK Premiership. With, like My notable teammates were Special and Toaster, uh-huh. who, who respectively play on XL Academy and Gamers Origin, I think it is. Mm-hmm. No, Vitality. No, Toaster plays on Vitality right now. He used to play for Origin, right, Toaster? Is that the right right player? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, he played uh, an ELCS yeah. split with Origin, or not a not an entire split. I think it was half one. Yeah, yeah. But he played with he played with them. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, after uh, the UK Premiership, I think it was for my career. Well, my career when I when I got to my peak of performance and to when I got relatively well known mm. was when I played when I played on Bosconia with Aranea as a coach. One split in spring 2016, and then in summer 2016, I played on Giants with Samox, Falco, Chandro, who coaches Excel. No, Fnatic. Yeah, mm-hmm. Fnatic. He coaches. He coaches Fnatic now, and I had Hero and Solius, who are who still play in national leagues, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. Mm-hmm. And then uh, 2017, I joined Fnatic Academy and Fnatic main team as like a analyst strategic coach so to speak i mostly i mostly worked with kickis um and then after i subbed in for the uh, their academy games or china series games at the yeah. time um i got promoted to main team sub and strategic coach so to speak nice. like a combination role mm-hmm. and then in, and then in the summer of that year 2017 i joined nip as a ro- like remote in house uh, strategic coach mm-hmm. because I I had a lot of stuff going on which I needed to go back and forth on but I went to Berlin a few times like a few weeks I was in Berlin to help the team there and then I talked a lot with the players and the coaching staff out, I helped out there and then the rest I would be doing remote work with the coaching staff and the players like I would watch their scrims and then talk to them through Discord yeah. or the chat feature of the League of Legends client and in 2017, at the end, I retired, or retired. I, st- I just stopped doing anything league-related, and I mm-hmm. did Tears of the Storm in 2018. And now in uh, in spring 2019, I played on Sector 1 in Benelux, and now I played on Barashi Esports in summer. Amazing. Because, you know, the really interesting thing for me, uh, and this is obviously from my background uh, a super interesting one, is, you know, while you're working for NIP, while you're working for Fnatic Academy, you're a, a strategic coach. Uh, but a coach, yeah. nonetheless, positional, strategic, whatever the right wording is for that. But regardless, you were working with the likes of Profit, Nagne, and Shook on NIP, if I'm correct, as well as obviously the the big names of Fnatic. Reckless was probably in there. You mentioned Kikis, um, but obviously you're no longer a coach, uh, which may go some way to answering this question. But what was your experiences like as a coach? Because it's you know completely different ball game to playing. But what was your take on all of that as a, a job role? I think coaching. As like obviously, I didn't do coaching as in like the head coach stuff, sure. which is a very different from strategical coaching. Mm. Like strategical coaching, it comes down to only the game. I did do like mentality stuff, but that was mostly um, without practice, like without really learning for it, having an experience. Mm-hmm. It just sharing what I would think would work for the players, and yeah. for some players, yeah. it, it it would work sometimes. Mm. 
But what I mostly did is I would look at the game and I would just look at, um, depending on what my job was for the week. Like I had weeks, for example, where my job was work with Kikis to improve his mistakes or look at this specific mistake from bot lane or X player and try to improve it. And so I would have my job uh, and, and sometimes I would just look for my own stuff. Like I would just look at scrims and be like, yo, this is not good. Or I would look at the competitive games and be like, this is what's consistently going wrong with us. We should fix this. Mm. And this is how, how we should fix this. But overall, my experience as a coach, like as a strategic coach, um, it helps a lot if the players that you're working with are very well receiving. Like the player that received my coaching and when I worked with them the best was Kikis. Like he would always be open for it, always open for discussion. Uh, he would apply it very often, like very quickly. Mm -hmm. And then it's then it, then it's great to work with it. But there's also situations where coaching staff, you like, as a coaching staff, you sometimes don't agree with stuff. Uh, sometimes the player don't agree with you. Um, and then it's then it, then it becomes rough. Mm. It, it becomes rough to sometimes get through to them and look at it from an unbiased perspective. Because yeah. it's all it's always as a strategic coach, you always have to a lot of coaches and. Sometimes even players, when they talk, when they talk to coaches, they fall into this fallacy that they think that the coach is always right, mm. rather than the coach is there to facilitate discussion and to like facilitate thinking, so to speak. Like I'm, I, I knew I was sometimes just not right. Like I don't know everything. I'm not, I'm not a Korean superstar <laughs> or or whatever, you know. Like I, I'm just a regular player that played a lot and looked a lot of League of Legends. But thinking about it, like thinking together. And discussing like discussing just concepts in general, it's a lot more valuable than what the public sees. Rather than just being like, "Oh yeah, you know, like this specific thing, you should always do it," and I'm your coach, so you should listen to me. Yeah, because that style of coaching is is really um, it's for some players they can't take it that well. Like they're rookies quite often, or less experienced players, they need this. Like they need someone to teach them the basics. And how to apply specific macro concepts, but mm -hmm. uh, I think veterans or people that play for a really long time, or just in general, like not so much veterans, but just people that play for a long time, have been in competitive for a while. You need to facilitate ways for them mm -hmm. to start thinking about the game in different ways. Like they're very rooted in how they think about the game, and then you just need to, to change it or to make them progress in it. And that's what you're doing most of the time as a strategic coach. Yeah. Because the, the two sort of big coaching styles that are most interesting to me at the moment is CLG and is G2, right? Because they are polar opposites. You get G2, which is, from what I understand and what is sort of openly in the public through G2's own uh, content, as well as podcasts that Grabs has been on, things like that, he very much takes on the role as a, of a facilitator. So his players are infinitely more knowledgeable about their roles than he is. And more often than not, that's something that you're going to experience as a coach, right? That... If you're the head coach, your players will know a lot more about mid lane than you because they're the mid laner, you know? So that's one that's really interesting and that sort of echoes that thought of facilitation that you talk about. Um, but the other one is CLG and that's the more of a traditional sports model where they have Weldon as the head coach and then from that he employs the specialists like Irene and, and those sort of people that can help fill the gaps of his knowledge. So I'm interested to get your take on that. This idea of facilitation, you said, works with veterans. What What's your take on the CLG approach as well? Let's get someone who really knows how to structure practice, really knows how to get the best out of their players from a motivational, psychological standpoint. And then let's get Irene or, for example, Summer, who's their head of player development. Let's get those people to fill in the gaps of knowledge that I have as the head coach. 
I mean, it depends, right? Because for the, the facilitation style, like it, it heavily relies on your players knowing what they want to do mm. and how to how to play the game, which is sometimes it escapes some people. Yeah, like there are a lot of there are a lot of players that just grind, 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 and they play the game and they get this instinctive feel for the game, mm -hmm. like they're really good at the game, but they don't necessarily think that much about how to play the game. And I think those kind of players benefit a lot from a structured training regiment and just like teaching style so to speak yeah teaching versus facilitation or to some degree like for for the people that, ha that have been on, on like in the university there's a lot of classes that have like these self-study um units structures yeah units so sorry structures where it's like they they teach you the basics or they give you the basics and then they expect of you that you go more in depth on your mm -hmm. own because they expect that work to be done by you, and it's sometimes better that you do the work rather than being taught something that you figure it out yourself. So you you develop this this ability of of critical thinking on your own on your own performances or work, and you develop like you develop the ability to teach yourself stuff, mm. and that's what the facilitation coaching is all about. Whereas the the head coach teaching coaching. It's a lot more about we want to refine, like we want to refine, we want to teach our players how they play the game, and we want to lay it on them how to play the game, and then within that framework, they have room to to grow or to do what they want. Like I think COG's style, so to speak, is very very defined. Like you can see it in their games mm -hmm. when they play that they have a certain style that they want to play. Whereas with G2, I mean, obviously G2 has a style as well in the games, mm -hmm. but you can see they're looser with it. Like, yeah. they're a lot more instinctive and just player-focused, whereas with, with COG, you could clearly see, like, this is the game plan, and you're going to execute on it. Like, there's game plans where you can obviously see our game plan is to get Ruin ahead and play for Ruin, and then they their entire game warps around that. Whereas with G2, mm -hmm. you, don't really, you don't really get the feeling that they have a, a coaching staff game plan, so to speak. Mm. Like they have a plan of how they want to play the game themselves, which is usually like Mickey X roaming, having very strong lanes and playing off of that. But it's not like they have this like composition where you're like, oh yeah, they're just gonna camp, they're gonna camp wonder, they're gonna get wonder ahead, and then create advantages through top lane tempo advantage or whatever. Mm. You don't really get the feeling that they have a plan laid out like that. So I think those are the differences in the coaching style which you get in, into the games, but. I think in the same vein, also comparing COG to G2 is a bit weird because I think G2, whilst their coaching style is good, it's also very easy to fall into the trap of saying like, yeah, because G2 is winning everything, their coaching style is really good. Yeah. Because I think their coaching style definitely has flaws mm. in the sense that against more structured teams, if they can match you on, on good days, so to speak, you're going to you're gonna run into troubles where you don't really have a structure in your game or a structure in in the team that you can fall back on you know mm -hmm. like you have this this you can just say like oh yeah what's our plan and this is our specific plan i'm not saying that g2 doesn't have game plans they will have for sure but they're probably less elaborate than game plans that clg set up yeah. with their coaching staff and in their practice mm. and i guess that sort of links back to the the point that you made that g2 if they didn't have these five players probably couldn't play like this you know i wonder how much if you just took out one of the players or took out two of the players would we still have this like laissez-faire grabs that was like yeah man we just draft and then they go into game and they know what they're doing so let's go with it you know that's i think a really interesting point as well um, i mean at one point at one point they switched out 
Mickey X for Promise Q, yeah. and they didn't. They didn't look. I mean, obviously, I like Promise Q. I coached him on NIP, and mm. I think he's comparative to public opinion of him. He's definitely underrated in that sense. Yeah, like I think he can be a really good player who sometimes has mm, weird strokes. Like he has these weird issues that he needs to fix, and he, he knows them as as well as anyone else that has been on a team with him. But I think overall. He will probably definitely be like a top five support in LCS or LEC. I'm sorry mm. if he played, but I think G2 looked a lot worse with Promiscue than it did with Mickey X, yeah. and I think that's based like that the synergy that's built up, and based that their their game style revol revolves a lot around just having winning lanes all the time, like having really smart players mm. and really good players in that sense. Like that's all what a lot of their style depends on, mm. and when they swap one out, like it's it. it Ruin, it doesn't ruin the synergy, but it mixes it up. And you have a slightly worse player on support, which is a really important role in competitive Fortnite style specifically. Yeah. So I, I think there's weaknesses in that sense that if you switch out a player, that it becomes a lot worse. Whereas if you have like the structure approach, where promise you had scrimmed for a week and the head coaches, the head coach, the coaching staff is like, this is how we do it, fo study it, follow it. You know, mm. it would probably give like. It still, it would probably still be worse, but it would give better results comparatively to the other coaching style. At least that's how I feel about it. No, really interesting, really, really interesting. Uh, my one of my big wonders, and and maybe you can weigh on this quickly, um, weigh in on this quickly, is the idea that you you speak about G two. Most of their game plan revolves around winning lanes, right? Having strong lanes that the players can then just go and beat their opponents, right? What what happens? This is figuratively speaking, and uh, and obviously it's just you coming up with some ideas. But what do you think is going to happen when they come up against people that are equally uh, and can match them in those winning lanes? Now we saw a little bit about on MSI, but you know how teams differ, how players get better um, does differ an awful lot through the splits, right? So I'm interested to see what you think at Worlds specifically when Caps comes up against someone who is his equal rather than someone that you know, hasn't been playing as well or, or isn't as good as him. What's your take on that? I mean, last year at Worlds, mm. Caps was on Fnatic, obviously, not yeah. G2. Um, but Rookie handed it, like, handed his ass to him. Like, Rookie really did beat Caps quite hard last, mm. last year at Worlds. This year at MSI, it was looking quite different, but I think it's, a, it's also a result of the overall team being good. Like, overall, just every single player in each role could contest other roles mm. but i think in their games against um if you look at their games against skt for example like they won one game of the fact that it was the first time that they pulled out the pike the pike against jace and then yeah. they punished punished that's got punished khan which i think khan is the weak not the not per se the weakest player on skt but definitely the most exploitable player sure. on skt so they they made smart use of a weakness on skt mm. like you can't take anything away from G2 in that sense. But I do think you can take what you can take away from G2 is when they had their series against SKT, not the group stage game, but the series against SKT, mm -hmm. they had this one comp that was very uh, game plan focused. It was like Vladimir, Vladimir Jarvan, Midland, I don't remember, and then, like it was a relatively scaling build. I think it was Kaisa with something else. Sure. And, you, and you could just see that the team couldn't execute that well if they didn't have these strong lanes and these strong champions sure. and these strong wings. And obviously in competitive right now, with in general, any team that doesn't have strong a strong lane to play through or can create advantages somewhere, 
it's really hard to play a competitive that way because just mm-hmm. scaling doesn't work up anymore. You can accelerate the game in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. But in general, there are teams that get away, especially recently, there are a lot of teams that get away with like very heavy scaling and then having one lane that can anchor the game, the their team comp through early game. Mm-hmm. And I think if SKT has to play these anchor comps, which rely a lot on having a game plan and executing around it, they become more exploitable than when they play their own style, which is just this boss, this boss of the wall, aggression, just yeah. go all go all out. Like I think some of the games that really impressed me in G2 in this specific split, like in the LEC split, not MSI, sure. was the games where they were playing Clet and how they were u- utilizing the Clet so so well to just accelerate the game like mm-hmm. infinitely. Like they were not playing through top; they were they just had a Clet. And then the, when the moment came on, they just turn on and it's engage after engage with the Kled. Yeah, yeah. You, you can just see how that specific style fits G2 so much better than when they play like Vladimir or Victor Top or whatever. And mm-hmm. I think most of the, I think most of their losses are when they play these these more scaling, um, reactive champions than when sure. they play these these proactive all yeah. the time. Interesting, super interesting. Because obviously the UK split is something that's been going on, and that's what we'll talk briefly about here and. And for those who aren't aware or aren't necessarily tapped into the UK scene, the previous split that we had on Barrage didn't quite go to plan. Uh, Not even remotely close to plan, to be honest with you. Um, But in every negative situation, every negative scenario or experience, there is for sure learning curves, right? Um, and, And this is something that as a veteran, I think you can pick up on better than a rookie player, right? What have I learned from this split? So the question is that really. What in the previous split have you learned? Whether this be in-game, it could be out-of-game, or even something personal about yourself. You might have found out that you are um, really, really good under pressure, or maybe that you're not as uh, experienced as you thought you were in top-lane matchups. Absolutely anything. So what's your take on that? Hmm. I think before my career, whenever I played in a, in a National League in ERL, mm. I was always considered like a, a top three top laner, at mm. least most of the time, in most splits. This split... Where I came in with quite low expectations. Like I don't think I don't think I was rated lowly, but it was less expectation than overall. But I was quite confident in my own play. Mm-hmm. When the split went away, went this way, I, it wasn't as much learning as reaffirming certain concepts and just reinforcing them in my mind. Where I think I think practice, like having a practice style and having an idea of how you're gonna play as a team from the start was super important because I think yeah. one thing one thing that we really lacked as a team was just overall direction and identity. It was like mm-hmm. um, we had what people expected of us was a, a, a team style that was like uh, they're going to play through top all the time. Yeah. Which for, for the record, I think in any competitive game, if your sole strategy is to play through top, I don't think playing through top is the right strategy in any competitive League of Legends game right now mm-hmm. because I think I think top is a role that can anchor the game like really hard. Like you can get through early game if you play through top, but it will never solo win you the game because it's always the role that has to create pressure on the map. It doesn't really execute that much on it. The other roles have to execute on it. That's that's like a, a different topic. Like I think that's something important to realize for me as well that you can't have a team where, at least in in, in my mind, the only real threats on our team this split, the way we played, was like solo lanes and. I think the meta just didn't suit it that well. Like the meta was so heavily focused around having the Aatrox top lane, like all these melee bullies that do stuff in lane, but they don't really do much else. Like the the Aatrox, the Renekton, mm-hmm. uh, the Gangplank, but also the the Karma in the middle of the split. 
which we had a weakness that we we didn't play it at all like we just didn't we never picked karma in practice yeah. we we played it occasionally but it, we didn't feel like it fit our team very well so we dropped it relatively quickly mm-hmm. and there was a lot of times where we played against these kinds of nico as well like nico and nar we played against them we played against nico once in uklc we played against nar twice and we just noticed that when you play these neutralizer champs and you have to counterpick them, you need a, a, a specific playstyle to counter it. Yeah. You need to play well against it. And we didn't execute that well on it because, like I said earlier, we were a team whose identity was going to be like play through top, but we didn't execute on it well. Mm-hmm. We didn't execute well on it at all. So we never really got to anything. We never amounted any early game plays or any, any early game to anything with our team comps and in our UKLC game. So we just... We fell behind every single game and then it was... An, an uphill battle all the time and it just resulted in in not much and the lesson i take away from that is that we need like i need to create better plans on the team and better ideas of how we execute on games and how we mm. win games specifically not so much how we play games but how we win games is really important yeah i think that's a really admirable trait though you know the the one of the things that frustrates many people whether you're professional or not professional is something that crops up in solo queue and something I would presume crops up in, in professional play as well is it can feel like uh, you are so dependent on the other four people on your team and this is the perfect solo queue thing is like when you're 4-0 and yet you're bot lane 0 and 15 right regardless of that um, I think it's admirable that you can look at a situation like that and go actually from all of these failures on this split and, and I think it is fair to call it a failure I don't think that's unreasonable for these failures that we've had in this split I can actually take something from this that I can improve on going forward you know and have this idea in your head that maybe if you do x y and z some situations will be solvable if not solved by doing that so uh, yeah it certainly takes as I said maybe it's a part of your veterancy that does it or maybe it's just the, the fortunate mindset that you have that has allowed you to do that so uh, admirable as I say um, but sort of despite this split, um, and I'm sure previous splits you have been considered a veteran player. I'm sure it's not just me that considers Zergoth as a veteran, you know. Um, but a player with an awful lot of knowledge beside that. So you said that you were a, a situational coach. Uh, situational. Uh, positional coach. Or, positional coach, yeah. Um, and I didn't realise, when you said positional coach, I just assumed you were only coaching top laners. So this is something no, new for no. me, that you were coaching, it was a bot lane thing, it could have been a mid lane thing, it could have been macro rotations, it could have been anything. So, um, what is your take on this? And obviously with the knowledge that you do have, but thoughts on your experience as a veteran player and what like veterancy really means to you and how that can be or might not be beneficial in the, in the long term and the process that go alongside that. Because it could be a blessing or a curse, you know, because you know so much when things don't happen in scrims and you're like, how in God's name are you not understanding that? A, hy- a hypothetical scenario. I think veterancy as a teammate, as, as a player specifically, if you're a veteran, it doesn't always mean that you have to be the smartest player on the team or like the best player on the team. Mm. It just means that within a team, you have means and you have experience in handling team situations and handling specific situations in the game. Like for example, one thing that I did a lot as a rookie is I would uh, I would shout at teammates. Like I would be extremely over the top angry when we lost. I would be extremely passionate about the team. And then I had a veteran back then. Like, I had someone who was really experienced in, in, in being in a team who would, like, constantly talk to me and explain to me how, how you're supposed to do that kind of stuff. So as a veteran, it's also important that you you know how to how to foster situations within the team where you can discuss things freely because you won't always be winning. It's a competition. Yeah. Like, there are, there are situations in 
in any competition where your team is just going to play bad. There isn't much you can do about it. Like there might be external factors, there might be internal factors, but there are just moments where you're just not not going to play well. Mm-hmm. And then when you're a veteran, you should be able to deal with these high highs and and low lows and figure out a way how you're to how you're going to continue working, how you're going to continue keeping people motivated, and then work towards the, the victory. So I think in this specific situation on 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 teams. Uh, on barrage, for example, I, uh, in a lot of our practice, a lot of our scrims, I would be the one that's saying like we can. When we were getting completely utterly devastated, I would be the one saying like, yeah, we are getting devastated, or what, or or what's happening. But we should take we should take something away from this. We shouldn't surrender these games at 20 yeah, minutes yeah, or yeah. at 15 minutes because we're getting stomped. Like we should continue playing and learn how to play from behind. Because mm. lo, lo and behold, like we play in our UKLC matches. Uh, we fall behind 5k gold in the early game, and then we have to try and claw, ourse- claw ourselves back. Mm-hmm. And if you and if you keep as a team saying we're not going to play these games from behind in scrims, you're not going to learn how to play them from behind as a team in actual competitive matches. Sure. So as a so as a veteran, you should just be saying like, we have to, we have to remain calm. Like calmness is super important. Like calmness is super important in League of Legends with an asterisk next to it. Yeah. Like you, you need people you need people who are passionate and motivated to win games. Like. You need people who are shouting like "go go 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 go" when you mm-hmm. get a pick, or you need someone in the team which could, that that's able to shout when you get three kills. That's able to shout "we go Baron now as five. You need those. You need those people. You need them in the team, but you also need the per- a person in your team that's able to say when you get aced, guys, we get aced. How are we going to play the game from here on out? Like, what are we going to do next? We lost Baron. How are we going to deal with with them having the buff? And that's what. A veteran entails a lot too. Like sometimes veterans aren't even people that know the the macro that well, but they're people that know the the team play really well. That know how how a mentality affects competitive games, and that's the most important part about veterancy. Like applying what you've learned in the past and applying how you make comebacks, how you made I consistently made comebacks, or on the flip side, how you played game, games out clean. Like if you get a lead, your veteran can say. This is how we play it. Like this is how we apply our, our team composition, or this is how we apply our players in this specific situation. Mm-hmm. It's up to the veteran to have the knowledge of that and to be able to apply it to tell the team how to do it to some degree. Like the team, yeah, yeah. obviously, the player, the players have to know it themselves as well. But veterancy, like a lot about veterancy, is being able to consistently think about it and apply it again, mm-hmm. rather than having these situations of like someone gets a lead and doesn't really know how to play out with it. Then. It, it's up to a veteran or someone on the team that's like experienced or calm to be like, you should be doing this or we should be doing this rather. Yeah, and I think that I was just about to jot it down there so I didn't forget. But essentially, with the difference between most traditional sports and League of Legends is this, uh, or one difference, let's say, because God knows there's hundreds and hundreds of them. But one of the big ones in terms of this topic is um, coaches in traditional sports, let's take football or soccer, for example. Um, you have a coach who stands on the sideline who can shout orders or can get a player to come over, tell them what they want the player to do. The player can go and spread that. They then go ahead and try and execute on that. League of Legends is completely different. In a competitive environment, the coaches are away from the team, can't speak to the team and don't speak to the team. So a veteran to me is also, and, and maybe this is echoed by what you were saying, you guys as a veteran takes on this sort of role as a coach in game. And that could be a hand-holding that needs to be hand-holding, like, calm down, everything's going to be okay, don't worry, we can do this, we're 5k goal behind, but that doesn't mean that we can't win. It could be, right, let's look at this for a macro rotation, 
we're going to set up vision around Baron, we're going to put top lane in the bot lane, whatever that is, you know? And I think that's a really interesting one, and I think a role that you did fulfill very well on Barrage was that, that was taking on this role as a, a, a guider, someone who can lead a team in that scenario that's more like, um, also, and, and that, you know, maybe you learnt this from NIP, from Fnatic, that takes on that coach's role when the coach can't coach, and that, like, physically can't coach, you know, in-game. So, yeah, I think that was a really interesting take for me as well. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I agree with it. I also think one misconception with people I have about veterans mm. is that veterans are leaders. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't think of being a veteran necessarily means you always have to be a leader mm -hmm. because being a leader also requires you to have charisma to be able to lead. And I'm not a natural leader, mm -hmm. so to speak, and a lot of veterans aren't, but they are naturally followed because they have this experience and they have the wisdom of it. But I think there are like there are natural born leaders and players, even when they're young or rookies. Mm -hmm. And it's really important for for these nat these natural leaders, like the people that can naturally lead teams to victory or what whatever, like the shot callers, the people that talk a lot. It's also really important to to guide them, to coach them in the games, so to yeah. speak, towards this decision. And I think that's, uh, that's the point, isn't it? It's the, the idea that you are the coach when the coach can't coach. I think that's a really interesting one for me, at least. Yeah. Very good. Because, you know, one of the topics that I wanted to chat to you about as well on top of this was, was top lane. And uh, we've spoken oh. a lot about the role in the past. Um, and, and the reason is, is to me, it's, it's a bizarre one. And it's bizarre for several reasons. The way the lane has been played has some unbelievably polarizing styles. More akin to the jungle than it is ADC, for example, until recent, of course. But from the Maokai meta to Bruisers to Worlds when it was Urgot, Victor, Aatrox. And now this like incredible amount of flex picks, these Bruisers. You're playing Akali, who was previously a mid laner, and you're playing it top because in this scenario it works. Um, but more so as a player who can provide value in shot calling and team decision making. This may be a role that can have its intricacies for you personally. So I'm interested from your experience, what's it been like dealing with these changes um, and the polarizing changes, like really opposite in terms of play styles in some circumstances, and uh, dealing with these issues as a whole. So for this one, I don't quite exactly remember who said it. Mm -hmm. I think it was I think it was someone like Reaper Impact or like a Korean top in a plane in an Yeah, but he, they said that the no 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 I remember now it was the shy the shy said this. Basically, a top laner's top laner greatest skill is versatility and adaptability. Mm. It's not that you're the, the most insane carry player that has ever existed, or you're the most stable tank player that's ever existed. But you need to be able to play all of it. You need to be able to adapt to what your team needs, and that's because of the fact that top lane, most of the time, there are, there have been metas where this wasn't the case, where the carries were just so insanely overpowered that top lane was the carry rule. Mm. But 90% of the time, top lane is a role, which is like an anchor in the game. Like, if you're winning, uh, if you're winning the rest of the map, or you're creating tempo on the rest of the map, top lane is a role that can secure that lead, that wants to secure that lead, either through teleport pressure, or through roams, uh, or through scaling. Like, there are champions on the map that just want to scale, and they benefit a lot from their team if they... Their team benefits a lot if they just scale and sit there and do nothing. Like, Vladimir, for example, or Gangplank. Like, mm -hmm. they're just sit, champions that sit in top lane and do... Absolutely nothing. But I think overall, like all these changes, it, it's it's rough as a top laner, like specifically when you're starting out. 
um, to constantly adapt to these changes because it happens quite fast. Like it happens mm -hmm. really fast all the time, where where the playstyle just shifts from one thing to another. Like we went from purely mages on MSI to very recently top lane has become entirely bruisers, like entirely bruisers. Like Aatrox, Rennington, Gangplank, Camille, Nar, just becoming the staple of top lane right now. So you can see that shift where we went from where it was basically Cannon, Nico, Silas, Vladimir top all the time. We went to Aatrox, Rennington. So you can see this sh this really quick shift in playstyle. And it's really important for top laners to stay on top of that, to be constantly evolve their champion pool in a way where they can uh, they can use these rust these meta changes to, to their advantage to some degree. Mm. Um, so as a top laner, versatility and baseline game knowledge is very important. Like, I think more, more important so than other roles. Whereas AD carry, like I think for me, AD carry is the role that requires the least amount of adaptability yeah. outside of like the, the last year there was a patch or a while where they completely screwed up AD carries yeah. and everyone was just playing ma mages and yeah. bruises on bot and assassins. Mm. That was that was rough, but for like in that degree they they deserve that to have a change at least <laughs> once in a while. Yeah. Sure. Just one, just half a year or something else, you know, and then, and then they then they get their tools back out, because, yeah, yeah but <laughs> but yeah, I think top like AD carry is the role that requires the least amount of not game knowledge per se, but adaptability. Whereas just purely, if you specialize in one style, which is like playing this AD carry role, where you're either extremely lane dominant into team fight dominant, or you're this staple AD carry that just farms all game and plays team fights well, you will always succeed with that as an AD carry and the the like if you the hard the better you specialize in these specific roles, the better you will be as an AD carry. Mm -hmm. That's just the truth of it. So, uh, expertise is is the name of the game for AD carry. Whereas with top lane or jungle, it the roles shift the roles shift so much in terms of what's meta because of partly because of there's more polarizing matchups in these roles. Like for example, if a champion like Aatrox becomes meta, Aatrox is very I mean not recently because he's been quite overpowered for yeah. a long time. But if, if he was a bit more down to the regular level, he has very polarizing weaknesses in the fact that he, he can get beaten really hard early game. Like, Fiora and Rennington right now beat him really hard. And there are ranged champions that can just stay outside of his range and and never allow him to begin this drain tanking damage machine that he is. Mm. So the, these roles are very polarizing in, in their matchups. So they shift a lot of the time. Like there, are, there are people who would pick Vladimir into certain, certain matchups, and then they would pick Vladimir a lot, and they would start blinding Vladimir. And then people realize, like, I can punish Vladimir really hard early game with these really aggressive champions, or these champions that beat him in later on slip pushes. And then they start picking those champions, and then Riot changes maybe Riot maybe changes Vladimir where he's not strong anymore, and then people go back to the first batch of champions that got countered by Vladimir, and so you get this whole rotating meta of champion archetypes in top lane that counter each other and, and interact with each other in different ways, which is more polarizing than AD carry matchups, which to me just seems stuff like Lucian is good, but Caitlyn is good versus Lucian, so yeah. people play Caitlyn, and then Caitlyn is good, but Ash is good versus Caitlyn, so people play Ash. And you get this whole rotating style of AD carries, whereas right now, for example, with AD carries, it's basically you pick Zyra Khan, and then you look for an answer against Hyra Khan. Mm -hmm. What's the answer against Hyra Khan? It's just Kaisa, Kaisa Nautilus or Kaisa whatever. And then people play Kaisa Nautilus and you're like, what can bully Kaisa Nautilus? And you're like, I'll just play Lucian Yumi or play Yasuo Yumi and just scale. Like It's very, very set in stone and very paper scissors on bot lane. 
because the 80 carry is a consistent factor in this one. You never really, no one's going really out of their way to step away from the 80 carries, which I, I think 80 carries are an extremely broken fundamentally role right now. Like just their items are so so strong, yeah. And the yeah. and and the champions themselves don't really like they rotate. Like recently, for example, if I if I look at the stats, like it was recently, I think it was Ezreal. Ezreal was really strong, and you had Varus being played quite a lot, and you had Corky in mid, and uh, Sivir, for example. Like, mm. Sivir was played a lot, and now you have Zaya and Kaisa being the best two bot lane champions on the map uh, in the current state of the game. So, the archetype doesn't change. Like, the specific character changes, but the archetype doesn't. Like, yeah. it's not like you're going from, from Marksman to, to Mage to Bruiser on bot lane. Like, it's just... Uh, marksmen all the time with specific tanks or, or enchanters mm -hmm. with them that synergize well or that are strong in the meta. Whereas other roles, they require you to be so versatile, to be so to have this access to these specific champion pools because archetypes do counter each other most of the time. Like Brewsters are very heavily countered by mages and they like lame bully mages specifically stuff like the cannon, the Nico. Like they don't really get off the ground that well against those kind of champions because they they don't. They need a lot of like Ruins are champions that need a lot of gold for their builds. They have the most expensive builds in the game. Mm -hmm. try, which Trinity Force often being staple for them. Maybe um, item as well. Yeah, TM items are generally very expensive. Starox Gauge is also very expensive for the stats it provides. And then their only cheap item is Guardian Angel, which, quite frankly, Guardian Angel is was more being built by. Uh, jungle bruisers than they were, but then they were by top lane bruisers, mm. because Guardian Angel was this very cheap cooldown reliant item that was like, we have this, we have this cooldown, we have the cooldown on this item that's up, we're gonna go, and then the next five minutes is like a flash timer, we're not gonna play until Guardian yeah. Angel is up again, which was really good for junglers when they reduced the income on the junglers, but people still wanted to play bruisers there. Yeah. But I think overall, the, in the top lane specifically, the shifting paradigm of, of champions. It's, you need to stay on top of it, so to speak. Like, you need to be able to play a lot. Um, and you can see it a lot in, in a lot of players that don't do this, where they they restrict themselves to a specific pool of champions. Like, Bruisers is one that's very very heavily played because they're the most fun to play. They're the best in solo queue, so everyone just plays yeah. them, you know? like Everyone's like the Aurelia Jax player <laughs> that, that just want. But then they come into competitive, and it's like, they don't really play that, that much. They pick Aatrox, like in the current patch, they just pick Atrox and are fine with it. But when Atrox is out, what do you do? And mm -hmm. that's that's the rough part. Like, are you able to play the cannon? Are you able to play the Nico? Are you able to play the Vladimir? But also, are you able to play the Scion if it becomes meta again? And this is like the most important thing about top lane and what you see in the historical best top laners. Like, I would say Marin is probably one of the best historical top laners. The yeah. Shy, for example. Um. Ooh, who else? I mean, I think. know you're a fan of Sword, aren't you? Griffin's player. I, I, I mean, I mean uh, Sword, Sword to me, he, I think he's really good. I think he's one of the best weak side top laners in, in, in the world, so to speak. And I think he got a lot of flack on Griffin when he didn't need to. Like, he was he was the, the, the stereotypical anchor that I was talking about for the team earlier, where if the team does well, he is capable of pushing them over the edge. If the team does badly, he kept them in the game a lot of the time, and yeah. he he did he did it on picks that are that aren't necessarily associated with this playstyle. Like he, his Jace was very good, his Yorick was good, and uh, you don't really associate that, that that those champions with anchors. Like the yeah, anchors yeah, yeah. are more champions like Aatrox, mm -hmm. um, Gangplank is a very good anchor champion for this specific concept. 
but he didn't really play those. But I think Stuart was very good. But I wouldn't rate him like top of the world, so to speak. Like when Griffin was really good, you could consider him top of the world. But that's just the or top, the best top laner in the world. But that was just because of the fact that top lane is this very like he played this anchor style that's very team reliant. Whereas players like the shy specifically, um, uh. Fun plus Phoenix is top laner. I think it's three six nine. I need to, I need to look it up. Like I think Fun plus like there was Zoom. Like Zoom Zoom was also extremely good. Like Zoom was also an extremely good top laner, but he was like not this anchor style. Mm. Um, let me look it up right now. Fun yeah, plus. I, I haven't watched a lot of LPL, so for me the obviously I know RNG and I know IG. Oh yeah, Gimgun. Ah, there you go. Gimgun, Gimgun, Gimgun is is extremely good right now specifically mm. but kim Gun is also like kind of like the shy like he's not an anchor he's one that just goes in but fun plus phoenix is very like i i am very high personally for that on topic of fun plus phoenix mm. i w i really want to see fun plus phoenix versus g2 at worlds because they're so very similar in their style um where it's very player focused very shot calling from the player very loose game plan for what you can see that I I think it's going to be a bloodbath between the two teams, and I would like to see who comes out on top because Doin B yeah. has been on f on fire in LPL. Yeah, it was interesting because now that you've said that, it reminds me one of the mo more recent, I think the most recent Euphoria, one of the podcasts uh, that Riot produces for Europe uh, and the LEC, they gr had Grabs on, and Grabs literally was saying, if we play against Fun Plus Phoenix, I worry that this is just going to be a dogfight where every skirmish, every fight is taken all the time, and it just descends into this madness. It, it, it echoes what you say about their styles being so similar, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I also think for... Specifically on top lane, between Fun Plus Phoenix and G2, mm. I, I think Gimgun and Wonder, despite like the, the team styles being very, being very similar, I think Wonder and, and Gimgun are two very different players. Wonder is very much... I mean, Wonder is weird in the sense that he has a very large champion pool, but he plays different archetypes like very differently. Whereas Gimgun plays very like his champion pool is, is a bit less wide i would say but it is very focused on champions that just go in mm. he wants to go in yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's the word for gimgun right <laughs> so it's like they're very different players and i i wonder who's going to come on, on top because like i said versatility is the name of the game for top lane and whilst gimgun doesn't lack it he prefers to specialize himself whereas wonder is is if my memory serves right, like Wonder is very diverging for champion picks. Like he went from playing Aurelia to playing Kled to playing Victor to playing Cannon. Ah, uh, no, he didn't play Cannon. He doesn't play Cannon. He played Nico. He usually played the Nico instead of the Cannon. And then you throw a Soraka uh, there as well. <laughs> yeah, the Garen and the Soraka. <laughs> the, 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 the best top lane picks that you could play. <laughs> oh, no, but. Um, like, I, I think he, he plays so much. And it's very often he plays his anchor role for G two, where he plays what's needed more so mm. than he plays what's what's he then. I don't I don't think like I have no insider info in G 2s drafting style whatsoever, but I wouldn't be surprised if they prepare their drafts around their other players and then tell Wonder to finish off their drafts, so to speak. Sure. Like if they need more pressure, he goes for something with more pressure. If they need something that anchors really well in the game, he goes for these mages that just wave play. Yeah. Like, I'm not I'm not entirely sure, but I, I would imagine Wonder, like, not so much getting the Shaft in draft, mm. but more having the least freedom, which is why they gave him so much freedom to play random stuff yeah. at the end of the split. <laughs> yeah. and that, that, that would be my, that would be my yeah, theory around sense. it. Yeah, it would 
for sure makes sense. The, the, the point of versatility is so interesting for me because obviously, and, uh, and I keep bringing it back to traditional sports and everything that I talk about, but the reason is is because it's, it's a point of contest that you don't see anywhere else. The, the point is, in no traditional sport do you change the weight of the ball that you're using. You don't change, like, all of a sudden my tennis racket is now square, not uh, oval. There's, there's no, like, cricket bat that you start using that is no longer a bat. Uh, you have to use it with your mouth. Like, these changes don't happen in traditional sports, right? But these, like, this depth of versatility is something that is akin to that idea in League of Legends, right? Okay, so you've been playing Maokai for the last year. What you're going to do now is you're going to start playing uh, Irelia and Camille. These are, like... The versatility and the difference in playstyle is so large that it is almost akin to changing the weight of the football or making a football shaped as a triangle now instead of a sphere. You know, these sort of changes are mind-boggling for me and must be very, very difficult to sort of cope with as a top lane main, you know? Difficult to cope with? I'm not entirely sure. Like, I think some, some patch changes are really rough, like... Yeah especially reworks like there are a lot of reworks because of the fact that reworks aren't allowed to be played in competitive one to two weeks mm. uh, even after the patch has dropped in competitive mm -hmm. it sometimes creates these really awkward situations of like there's a champion that's entirely gone from the game now and there's a new champion that has entered the game and that usually that often creates a situation that's really rough. like the Mordecai's rework was quite frankly Dofus, right? But it was shitfest. Mm. It was he was disabled in a lot of regions, wasn't allowed to be played, but some regions allowed him to be played. Yeah. And he was when he was when he wasn't nerfed yet, he was one of the best champions in the game. Like he was being blind picked by LC, by LEC teams, blind picked by LCK teams. Whereas other regions they they didn't think he was good. And they were just like, it, it was a very interesting and polarizing champion in competitive, and I would have liked seeing him more, but he was just disabled for a really long time mm. because of the rework. He wasn't developed properly. Like there yeah. were so many bugs with him. The spectator client didn't work properly with this ultimate. Um, he created bugs in games where he had permanent damage output globally with his passive. If he died <laughs> on a specific time in his in his ult, it, it was just really bad. And it, it creates these situations that are sometimes really shit to deal with as a competitive player. Like w one situation that I remember very vividly was back in season five. There was the gangplank rework, mm. and gangplank was allowed to be played in competitive one week after the rework, which is normal. But what they did, they disabled him on live servers for the lore event. He was dead. Like, Gangplank had died as a, sure. as, as a joke. But in, in Korea and in China, you could play him in the ghost skin, because he was dead. He was a ghost. Oh, okay. In, in, in Europe, you were not allowed to play him. You just couldn't play him on live servers at all. Hmm. Um... Um... You couldn't play Gangplank at all on the, on the live servers in Europe, but he was allowed to be played in competitive. So, um, Wicked? No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonder played it against Wicked in yeah. competitive. Um, sorry about that That's one. Right, don't worry. <laughs> but, um, Gangplank was played in competitive in back in season 5 when he wasn't allowed to be played on the live servers because of the lore event. Mm -hmm. So there was this huge drama about it because no one had practiced against it and wonder just played it first time because he had played it on pve so he knew how to play it so it's like these reworks and changes to the game are not handled very well sometimes mm. um and in regards to patch changes specifically um or just the meta changes on top lane like obviously you need to stay on top of it and like you said in traditional sports changing the weight of the ball 
But in, in games, it's slightly different than the fact that the role you play doesn't really change. It's just the champion that you play, like yeah. how you execute, how you execute it. Um, and in, in that sense, uh, I, I don't think the changes are that heavy. Like, obviously, there are top laners. There are competitive top laners in, the his, in history that have completely fallen off or beca- became gods just purely on the basis of the, the metas. Like the, I think Smep, for example, was one that benefited a lot from stuff like Irelia becoming really good on top lane because mm. it's one of his better champions. Smep was a Riven player. Uh, his cannon was insane. But when it came to champions like Renekton, for example, Smep has never really like been that good. Or when it came to tanks, Smep wasn't really that good on it. So it's like... And the Shy, for example, the Shy is very... The Shy is very versatile, but he is a player that, that primarily plays carries, so to speak. Mm. And when you get to these more supportive roles on the team, you just see that he doesn't have the same impact as other top laners. Yeah. Um, and when I say the word impact, you have to think of the NA top laner <laughs> that... Up until recently, he just couldn't play carries. The team just couldn't execute on it, and he wasn't that. Worlds, wasn't it? Where he really yeah. showed up for that. I mean, you mean last year Worlds? The I don't remember. I, like I don't remember that much how he played at yesterday Worlds, but I, I watched a lot of LCS mm. recently, and like this split, he has been able to play the Aatrox and the Jason stuff yeah. to a decent level. But the split before it, it was, phew, yeah, it, yeah, it didn't. Yeah. It didn't look good. Like all of their losses were when they picked stuff like Jace mm-hmm. or Akali on top. And he just didn't look good. And even now in the finals against Cloud9, it's like it gets to a game five scenario. And what what champion do you find that impact is playing? He's playing Shen. Yeah. It's it's for his team. And like he's just a player that prefers this supportive playstyle, prefers this tank mm. playstyle. And so when the meta is so very heavily around carries, that's when he's at his weakest, so to speak. Yeah. And it's just the, like in that way, the meta affects a lot of players. Like for me personally, I always prefer bruisers and mages over tanks or assassins more that kind of stuff if, that, if that's ever met on top lane mm. so in that sense yes it affects players but i still think as a competitive player it's your job and to be versatile and to just work on it if you're not yeah. uh so in, in that sense that's just that's just top lane just the way it is <laughs> unfortunately <laughs> yeah well look the, the last question that i sort of have for you before we go to the uh the standard last question for all guests is is one that's sort of a bit closer to my world than it is to professional play, you know. Um, and working yeah. with you, one thing that I've seen is a huge amount of progress in your health or your exercise journey. Put it as put it like that. Um, and I want to pick your brain and I want to get your opinions on what this like truly huge change in lifestyle has done for you and what that journey has been like. Because to start a journey like that is the the hardest part in my opinion the first step is is the hardest and continuing it on is also difficult as well you know so what what's your opinions what are your thoughts and, and how has it been going on this journey that you have been uh, going through mm. and maybe give people a little bit of background as well so uh, uh, in terms uh, <laughs> of what you've been doing uh, and what that looks like the health and exercise journey you know i mean i mean the background was literally like the most plain gamer background you could have is like over <laughs> over overweight gamer you know yeah. i never really gave it much thought up until this split mm. where i mean like you know like i wanted to lose weight i just decided i think it's time i think it was being really unhealthy um so i decided to do i wanted to go to the gym uh look at what i eat on a day and just try and lose weight and i think for me like the hardest part was starting out for sure um just going, just actually starting it when you're so used to being inactive is the hardest part, mm-hmm. 
100% the hardest part is starting out. But once you get into the rhythm of it, I mean, obviously, like, I, I, I don't know the science behind it. I haven't done that much research. Sure. But you start, like, it starts making your days better. Like, you feel more, you feel more active. Even if you're not doing that much, just the act, the, just being active, just doing stuff, makes you feel better. Mm-hmm. Like, it makes you feel, feel fitter on a day. Uh, more energetic in general and for me for me it helped a lot for performance as well and and like not directly specifically directly I don't think it did it had that much influence but it made my mood so much better when I knew I, I was on the right path and I was lo- I was losing weight but it wasn't only about losing weight like I just in general on a day I feel so much more energetic I can do a lot more I feel my mood's a lot better from going to the gym and just losing weight through through diet diet as well. Mm, I I think it just made so many things brighter and and like more enjoyable for me because I was being active and I and and I was losing weight. So in that sense, it for me it helped a lot in staying motivated and staying happy with what I was doing. Yeah. Because competitive League of Legends or a competitive sport in general, like it can even be. Um, physical sport. I mean, obviously, with physical sport, you're already exercising, but there's also other aspects, like other competitive sports, like chess, for example, where you're not always going to be winning. Like, there are situations where you're going to get frustrated, where you're losing, where things are going wrong. Like I said earlier, people can just not have their day and, and in league terms, feed their asses off in some mm-hmm, games. Mm-hmm. That just happens. But the most important part about that is just taking it well and then continuing onwards. And Having a good routine and having a healthy routine is very important to being able to take it well. For sure. And to continue onwards. For sure, because uh, for those people that don't know, it was pretty successful. And from what I've just uh, catching up with you prior to the re- this recording, you're, you're carrying it on. It's still happening. You've lost a ton of weight. It's been uh, really, really successful for you, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not only weight. Like, I've also gained a lot of muscle mass. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all a lot of muscle, which helps... Uh, helps with even day-to-day tasks like just trimming trimming fat and and uh, gaining muscle just helps so much with day-to-day as well it makes you it makes you look better like for me it's still a bit iffy because the the regions of fat that I really want to get rid of are the ones that are the hardest and going the slowest mm-hmm. but it, it, it goes day, like it it's a day-by-day basis like you just go to the gym you eat well and that's about it so it's all you can do yeah like, like you, if you want to speed it up, you can. But I'm not the type of person to be like, okay, I'm going to take, I'm going to diet like 1,200 kilo, like yeah, uh, calories. Cal- cal- calories yeah, a day, yeah, yeah. and just go to the gym like four hours, bro, just all day, all day. Yeah. All day. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm not going to be like that. I still yeah. want, I still want to play my games and stuff. But overall, like just doing it in a in a in a structured manner every single day helps. It helps. It helps so much for me. Yeah, well, look, as I said to you plenty of times, it's something that I was really proud of. I was super proud of you for, for managing to achieve what you've achieved with that. Um, so, again, a huge congratulations to you for that. Um, but the last question, and this one's a really interesting one for me, um, and this is the same question that I asked everyone that comes on the podcast. It's a shame spiel every time from me. Is The question is, what is one thing that you can teach me or the viewers from your world? And we've had so many different things, uh, from little book advice or quotes that people really like, um, but I'm super intrigued with you because uh, obviously, without being a League of Legends pro, you also have uh, you know your university degree and things like that. So I'm super intrigued as to what uh, your thoughts will be on this one. Oh, I have a at my university. I have a bachelor degree in yeah. mechanical engine in mechanical engineering. Yeah. But uh, what what can I teach from my world? 
I mean, it's not so much my world. Like, I, I could teach you formulas from physics, but I don't think anyone really enjoys that kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm going to be honest on that one. But I think one very important thing is to always... It's 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 the cliche, you know. Always look for happiness. Try to be happy with what you're doing. And if you're and if you're not, find find ways to be so. Like, I think the most important part in life is to enjoy yourself. And if you find yourself doing something you don't enjoy at all, switch it around, or switch it around, or find times or periods where you can do something. If you're if you're studying, I don't know, psychology, and you just don't enjoy it at all, look into avenues of changing that. Like, I, I studied civil engineering before I went to mechanical on it. Civil engineering was the most miserable time I had in my life. <laughs> Honestly, civil engineering was just uh, asphalt and, and bridges. It was really boring. Mechanical engineering is about product, like products, it's about development of products and that kind of stuff mm. as well. And it's that's that's a lot of fun. Like, I found a lot of enjoyment in looking at those kind of articles. Um, but this applies to anything, like even with League of Legends. If you don't enjoy a specific playstyle, just don't don't play it unless you unless you enjoy winning. Like if you enjoy winning yeah, 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 and you yeah. want to play competitive, sucks for you. You're gonna have to play Mao. <laughs> you're gonna have to you're gonna have to play Maokai whether you like it or yeah. not. <laughs> no, but might like, crop up again. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, I enjoy Scion more so than Maokai. Yeah, I, I would yeah. like I would like I would like for Scion to be strong again because I enjoy playing. There's the only tank I enjoy playing. Yeah, but it's like I mean, just happiness. Uh, it's the most important part. Because a lot of the things that you're gonna do, like work, for example, or you're gonna do so for a lot of time in your day. Time, yeah. Yeah, you're gonna do it for a really long time, and if you don't do what you enjoy, that that's gonna be really bad for your mental state. Like the men the mental state of a person is, it's so important. Like mm -hmm. having bre having breaks, being happy, doing stuff that relaxes. It's it's all very important. Like so many people forget about it. They either just don't do it, or they're, they're going too fast in their life to do it. But making time for it is what I found to be the most important thing, and what's helping for me the most. Like my first my my first year of university was really miserable because of this. I was spending uh, how long? Like nine till nine till five in university doing civil engineering. Then I come home. Yeah, then I come home and I have to scrim from seven until ten. Yeah, and and doing homework outside of that, and like the only time I could enjoy myself was seven until ten, because then I was doing what I what I liked, but the rest of the civil engineering stuff was just insanely boring to me. Mm. So try and look for something that 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 is enjoyable, because right. then it will make it will make it a lot better. Yeah, wonderful piece of advice, my dude. So thank you for for sharing that. I like that a lot. Um, but that wraps up everything that I wanted to chat to you about today. So firstly, I want to say thank you so much for uh, giving your opinions, giving your time. Because um, it's been a really, really interesting one. It's always interesting to sort of pick the brains of uh, of a pro player as well, you know. Because uh, you always get different opinions, always get different thoughts on matters, and and there were some really interesting takeaways from this one for me. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for your time. If people wanted to get in contact with you, they wanted to find you, they wanted to follow you. Where's the best place to do so? Mm, Twitter. Yeah. But I don't, I don't really do that much in terms of content. But mm. if they want to get in touch with me, like I'm always open for discussions or questions or anything. They can find me on Twitter at, at Zergoth. Yeah, that's mostly about it. I don't really have a Facebook or a YouTube or anything. Mm. I have a Twitch, Zergoth1, but I don't really stream that much on it. I might stream in the future on it, but that's all. That's like streaming for me specifically. 
I'm a very competitive person. Yeah. I don't think people would enjoy. I don't think people would enjoy me complaining about stuff on, on stream. So, <laughs> you know, I'll just, I'll just keep it to Twitter as Duragoth. Perfect. So if if you're watching this and uh, you want to find that, check the description below. Uh, whether you're on YouTube or any podcasting platform, the description will give all of the links for Zergoth there. So if you have watched this episode or listened to it, whatever you're on, thank you so much for being a part of it. I really appreciate your ears and maybe your eyes. But Zergoth, thank you so much to you. And I hope you guys have enjoyed this episode as much as I have. And we will catch you on the